Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Last Sunday, we left off with these ominous words, and they led him out to crucify him. Crucifixion was so horrible and offensive to the Romans that they would not allow their own citizens to die this way. In fact, it took a direct order or decree from Caesar himself for this policy to be overridden. For Jews, this kind of execution was even more abhorrent because they saw it in light of a passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. The Christian Standard Bible puts it this way. If anyone is found guilty of an offense deserving the death penalty and is executed, and you hang his body on a tree... You are not to leave his corpse on the tree overnight, but are to bury him that day. For anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. You must not defile the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. This is why Jesus was crucified outside Jerusalem, because they viewed the crucified person as abandoned by God. Crucifixion is gruesome enough without all the details. We must be careful as we go through the details the gospel writers provide that we focus on Jesus' real agony bearing the weight of the sins of those he came to save. Yes, All the physical terrors were real for Jesus and felt by him. We learned that last Sunday. But the weight of his death on the cross and the message behind it all are what the gospel writers want us to see and understand. Each gospel writer concentrates on the main message. But the details, what each one reports is happening sometimes show what the particular gospel writer is focusing on. And so we see in a few instances a particular emphasis revealed. For example, the gospels altogether record seven things that Jesus said on the cross. Matthew and Mark record Jesus' fourth statement. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's in verse 34 of our text. Luke records Jesus' first, second, and seventh statements. First, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Second, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And the last one, number seven, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And then John records the remaining of the seven, 
the third, fifth, and sixth statements. Woman, behold your God. And to the disciple John, he said, behold your mother. Fifth, I thirst. And sixth, it is finished. Let's go through them just to get the flow. We're not going to cover all this today. First, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Second, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Obviously, that's to one of the thieves. Third, to his mother, woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. Fourth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Obviously, you can tell that's one of the beginning things of the second stage of his actual condemnation. Fifth, I thirst. Sixth, it is finished. Seventh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. In Matthew's account, his interest and focus seemed to be the intense and the hate-filled mockery and verbal abuse hurled at Christ while he was on the cross. And Mark's account, our text, is very similar with just a little bit less detail. Luke's account includes details of Jesus' interaction with the robbers and the tearing of the curtain in the temple separating the Holy of Holies at the end. John's account includes how Jesus, even from the cross, took care of his mother's future needs. He also records the statement by Jesus that is still echoing across the universe, the words every Christian glories in. It is finished, signaling his atoning work was completed. In other words, Jesus had completely paid for the price, the price to release his people from their bondage to sin. He's announcing that he was paying the price for our sin in full. Christ died for him. Uh, he died for us, offering himself as the sinless sacrifice, buying back our freedom by paying sin's price. This phrase, it is finished in English, is only one word in Greek. It's used for financial transactions. A clerk would write on a sales receipt and that in on a sales receipt and it meant paid in full. That the purchase had been made, that no debts were outstanding, and that no further payment was required. John also records the details about there being no need for the soldiers to break Jesus' legs as he had already died. His side was then pierced with a spear. In case you're ever wondering or you've ever wondered why that was necessary, it's because of how a person usually dies 
when they're crucified, which we'll get to in just a second. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We need to get back to Mark's account. If you're able, would you please stand as I read Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. Be reading from the English Standard Version. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour, 9 a.m., when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. First, why was this man compelled to carry Jesus' cross? After being up all night, Jesus had just been beaten and scourged. He was now barely recognizable and severely weakened. His flesh was ripped apart from the scourging which means that some bones and internal organs were most probably exposed and a tremendous loss of blood. This walk to Golgotha has been referred to as the Road of Sorrows, Villa Dolorosa. Dolorosa. And it was as common in the Roman Empire as a, to have this kind of procession as a funeral procession used to be in this country. However, the Romans made this route the longest possible winding way to get to Golgotha. It was not a straight shot. And they did that in order to spread the fear of Rome to the most people possible. He must have been staggering as he tried to carry the crossbeam portion of the cross, which weighed anywhere from 30 to 100 pounds. And so the soldiers drafted Simon, who, as we see in verse 21, says, we learn, was coming in from the country. So who was Simon? 
Well, his name itself suggests that he was a Jew from Cyrene, a Greek settlement on the coast of North Africa with a large Jewish population. This place was directly south of Greece, where Libya is today. Simon was probably then a Jewish pilgrim who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. It's interesting here that Mark names his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, which means they were probably known to other believers. The bottom line is that we're told nothing more about Simon, even whether he was sympathetic to Jesus or not. Mark also records the offer of wine with myrrh here. Now, Golgotha was not a burial ground littered with skulls, but rather a small hill outside the city, outside the city wall, that looked like a skull. Notice in verse 23 that the first thing noted is the soldier's offer of wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Don't get this wrong. This is not offered as an act of mercy. Myrrh was actually a narcotic that had several uses. One was perfume. Another was it was used as as an ingredient of anointing oil for the priests, and it was also used for embalming. It was expensive and was one of the gifts to the infant Jesus, the perfume part there. It was simply used in this crucifixion setting to literally try to stupefy a victim to keep him from struggling and thrashing about as the nails were driven into his hands and feet. Jesus tasted its bitterness, which Matthew tells us in his account, and he knew what it was for, and he refused to take it. In other words, he was utterly committed to not having his senses dulled at all. Roman history gives us much information about death by crucifixion. I remember first hearing about this in college and wondering why in the world Did I have to be 18, 19 years old before I found out anything about what it really was? So I'm going to try, but without being too graphic. The crossbeam was first laid on the ground, in this case deposited there by Simon. Jesus, we learn, was stripped of his clothing and laid on top of the crossbeam with his arms outstretched. His hands were nailed to the cross first, probably with his arms tied in place to help out for now. The spot for each nail was on each wrist, 
where two bones come together near the pulse, so they had to be very careful not to hit the pulse. They used iron spikes. This part of the wrist was considered in the ancient world to be part of the hand. Nailing the feet was an even more delicate matter. Delicate in quotation marks. First, the crossbeam with Jesus attached had to be hoisted up, probably to a post that was already standing there. Then the soldiers had to make sure the knees were bent as they fastened them to the wood with one nail through both feet, one on one foot on top of the other. If they weren't bent, the dying man would not be able to stretch and get the proper air he needed to breathe. In other words, they didn't want him to die too quickly. This explains why the soldiers came and broke the legs of anybody still alive at that time. They needed to get them down before sunset so that the Jews would not cause another riot because Friday sunset was what? The beginning of their Sabbath. So when they got to Jesus, they didn't need to break his legs. He could not push up anymore because he had already died at that point. The ropes around the arms were then untied and removed. Obviously, there was a tremendous weight on the arms and the shoulders and the chest muscles. And after just a few minutes, the entire body would, uh, would be aching, violently obvious. As the prisoner tried to hold himself up, he realized that the only way he could keep breathing was to pull up with his nailed hands, but mainly he needed to push up on his nailed feet, thus the need for the bent knees. A gruesome, agonizing way to die because it didn't take a tremendous amount of time before you wore out and you could not push up to breathe. The soldiers then, as we read, divided his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Sure you just noticed that? Psalm 22, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In verse 25, It was the third hour, which was 9 a.m., when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Mainly to infuriate the Jewish leadership, Pilate had instructed his soldiers to put this sign above his head. In John 19, we find out that it was written in Aramaic, which was the language of Palestine. It's very similar to Hebrew. Latin, which was obviously Rome. And Greek, which was universal language of the Roman Empire, because the Greek Empire came first and it already spread it everywhere. By these three languages, Pilate was making sure of what? That every person 
who passed by could read the inscription. The chief priests went ballistic and they insisted that the wording be changed to read, He said, I am the king of Jews. But Pilate refused to change it, replying, What I have written, I have written. Now, if you want to know what that means literally, what it says literally, it's literally this message. What I have written will always remain written. R. Kent Hughes writes that Pilate was unwittingly stating an eternal truth. During Jesus' infancy, the Magi had come from the east heralding him as king. At the beginning of the Passion Week, the triumphal entry, the multitudes had cried, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And standing before Pilate in his interrogation in private, Jesus had borne witness to his kingdom, and now his royal title is actually fixed to the cross. And the rulers of Israel could not get it removed. What about the robbers? We read in our text that with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And only Luke records the, con- the conversion later of one of these men. It's also interesting to note that the word robber here is the same word used to describe Barabbas in John 18. So this probably means that these men were more than just thieves, since stealing was not a capital offense. Most think this refers to what we would call a revolutionary, a guerrilla soldier, or a terrorist. Now, Almost every passage we see people mocking and deriding Christ right after they crucified him. And there's really three groups mocking him that we see in Mark's passage. He makes this clear. Verses 29 and 30. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. This seems to be a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 7. All who seek me mock me. They wag their heads. James Montgomery Boyce comments, it's a sorry observation on our corrupt natures that people are seldom more heartless than when they see another person suffering as Jesus was. The first part of their taunt, those that pass by, Aha, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. 
This referred directly to the testimony of the false witnesses during this horrible trial, unjust trial before Caiaphas, in which the witnesses had misused a statement that Jesus had made almost three years earlier referring to his death and resurrection in John 2. When Jesus cleansed the temple the first time, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? What's that mean? They just didn't want a sign only. They were asking, what authority do you have to come in here and mess with our, our, our setup? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? And John comments, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. The second part of their taunt in Matthew's account says that they started this part with, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. This taunt should sound a little familiar. Remember what Satan said to Jesus in the wilderness temptations? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up. So, what's going on? Through the people passing by, Satan was still trying to get Jesus to evade the Father's will and avoid further suffering. The implications of that are staggering. Now there are second there was a second group in verses 31, the first part of 32, so also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. What's different about that than the rest of the deriding and the mocking? There's more than one grammar nerd in this group. Do you see it? The chief priest and the scribes, and we know the elders were in on this as well, did not address Jesus directly. Typical. Isn't it? Instead, they say, we read, quote, to one another. He, he, the Christ, the King of Israel. They are mocking him by talking to one another. 
so that he will hear what they're saying. You ever seen that? Ever had that happen to you? Usually your first memories of this kind of thing were in some hall, in some school somewhere, where you're walking down the hall and there's a group of somebody that thinks they're important. And as you walk by, they laugh. And you can you know, because you hear them just when you walk by, say some really mean, cruel things. We've all experienced that. This is so typical of the Jewish leaders. You know why? Maybe they know and remember that literally every time they did address Jesus directly with one of their questions, Jesus' reply resulted in the revelation to everybody who was listening and standing around that they were completely ignorant of what they should know and understand and be examples of came out loud and clear every time. What did they first say when he was teaching? That he taught with authority, not like the who. The scribes and the Pharisees, who were standing right there amongst them. And then he healed, or he cast out demons, or something else, and he did so with the majesty of being God in human flesh. And many times he wouldn't even address them, and other times he would be very, very harsh in the truth about what their hearts really reflected about themselves. Does that help? I personally think they didn't have the guts to to direct their deriding and mocking to him. So they just said it to one another so he could hear it. There's also something else that we can't help but notice here that's really important. These men, the leaders of Israel's religious community, representing the principal groups of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class both politically and religiously, the very same body that had just arrested, tried, and then condemned Jesus, In these statements, they did not deny any of Jesus' miraculous works. What did they say? He saved others. This is obviously referring to at least his healing ministry, including raising several people from the dead, casting out demons, healing the blind, the lame, the sick, people with leprosy, other diseases, etc., etc. And in the introduction to their own mockery then, they actually recognize and admit that Jesus' healing ministry 
was a demonstration of supernatural power. But when they add, he cannot save himself, they are falling into an infinitely deep abyss. Because they are then questioning the same supernatural power that had healed. I believe we just heard a Sunday school lesson about power and authority. Though Jesus could have saved himself, he could not have saved himself if he was to save others. The next part of this taunt, first part of verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Notice here that they substitute the world Israel for Pilate's word, the Jews. These men had not believed Jesus either for the truths he taught or for the miracles he he performed. So if he did come down from the cross, they still would not believe in him. And I hope you understand that. They wouldn't have believed in him any more than they believed in him when he rose from the dead later. The only kind of power these men was, were interested in was power which would serve their own expectations and interest. And nothing had changed. We need to understand these historical facts about what's going on because nothing has really changed about men's hearts either. Jesus was not their kind of Messiah. And they had no desire to follow him in the way he demanded. They wanted to be successful, not truly righteous. They wanted their selfishness satisfied, not cleansed from it. They wanted the Messiah to give them worldly, political and material advantages. They did not want to give up anything for God. And when they realized early on that Jesus offered no such favors, they had absolutely no use for him. None. No interest in him except to get rid of him. And certainly no belief in him for who he truly was. Has anything changed? Do we realize the incredible danger of people and places calling themselves followers of Christ when they want to be successful more than they want to be truly righteous? When people want their selfishness satisfied. They don't want to be cleansed. They just want to be able to say, God, forgive me of anything, using part of a truth to explain their own disobedience. 
They want the Messiah to give them what they want. Worldly, political, and material advantages. In the mystery of providence, if Jesus had come down off the cross, there would be no blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. There would be no ransom. There would be no salvation from sin. There would be no theological basis for healing. There would be no gospel of the kingdom to be proclaimed to nations everywhere. There would be no fulfillment of scripture. Praise God. He endured. We think we're tempted. We are. What do you think that temptation is like? These Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders recognized that Jesus' claim to be the Son of God was at least a claim to be the Messiah. They recognized that. So assuming that God must crown every effort of the Messiah with success, these guys concluded that Jesus' hopeless condition on the cross was proof enough of the vanity of his pretensions. Did you catch that? If this really was God's son, and he was hopeless on the cross, God should have saved him. They completely missed what the scripture taught about the Messiah's suffering and atoning death. And they took Jesus' crucifixion to be the final and irrefutable proof that his claims were just not true. Isn't it wonderful that the gospel doesn't end with Mark 15? It's precisely because of our need, our hopelessness, that Jesus willingly became this sacrifice. It's why we sing to him. It's why we pray through him. It's why we adore him. It's why we love him. It's why we follow him. It's why we're willing to suffer for his namesake. Nothing in this world is worth more than the affection and the love that we should be garnered for our Lord because of what he did. These men had seen on a regular basis these leaders. Just think about this. On a regular basis, the picture of a slain animal whose blood was offered as a sacrifice to cover man's sin. But they could not imagine that their real need was that was what that animal sacrifice pointed to. A perfect man who had to suffer and die in my place for my sin. A perfect man who had to endure the holy wrath of Almighty God so that I would not have to. 
a perfect man of which there are none except if God became man in human flesh. There's a lot of teachers in this crowd. What's it like when you give an example that is crystal clear in order to teach a truth that you know your kids or audience, whoever they are, is is old enough to understand and it just goes whoo over them? What's it like? What's it like when the lights go on? And it's usually the last kid you'd ever expect. If that happens one time in one class, for most teachers who have five classes, it keeps them going. Because it's joy. Jesus went through this knowing for the joy set before him that God had chosen a people for himself. And he was doing this for them. But while he was doing it, who got it? Nobody. And he was willing to go through that. Unlike several teachers. This is Jesus, the Son of God, whose name literally means, as we've been saying, Jehovah saves. This is Jesus who's called Emmanuel. What's that mean? God with us. This is Jesus who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It's Hebrews 12, second part of verse 2. There was one last group who joined in the mocking and the reviling. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is amazing, isn't it? Isn't it as amazing that Jesus, as Luke tells us in Luke 23, saves one of these robbers? Only God can bring new life and change our hearts. Let me read that. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, 
By the way, how could he say this after what he's going through? He did. Read those things that he said out loud, the seven, and you'll see how. And he said to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Folks, who are you willing to follow? Military men will tell you they would gladly give, give their lives, especially if their officer, the one they're following, is leading them into it. True? Who are you willing to follow? There's a man who up until almost his last breath knew that he deserved the condemnation of God. And yet he recognized who Jesus was. Remember me. You know, they didn't have time for a great discussion here. It had been kind of impossible. And Jesus knows his faith has been put on him. Remember me. When you come into your kingdom, wouldn't you have loved to heard? Should have been able to hear this. Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. That's more than hope. That's a statement of fact. How about us? Let's pray. Oh Lord, here we are literally at the crux of the message of the whole Bible. There's much to glory in as we see your mission completed. Impress upon our hearts and our minds what's most important here the majesty of the king on the cross and why he's there and what his death will accomplish. Thank you that we get to look at the final part of this next week to see the rest of what happened here. God, we know the story, but we need... We need to hear it every single day. We need to keep Jesus before our face as we walk through this life. He is worth following. It's only by your grace that we know you through him and that we can follow. We thank you for your faithfulness to us through Christ our Son. In his name, amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? From Second Thessalonians, Paul 
writes, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. You're dismissed.